Hello, everyone, and welcome to Data Femme, where we engage you with stories of how innovators across the globe are using data to achieve new heights in their respective industries. I'm Danielle, founder of Decayo Data, and I'm here with another founder, my friend David Jayatalaki. He is the founder of a company called Delphi, and he is going to tell you a lot about his experience founding this company and also about LLMs and semantic layers, which, as I'm sure you know, are very relevant topics in the industry these days. Every Data Femme episode is a journey that I love to share with you all. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. Well, let's get started then. I'm really glad you're here. And I'd love to start by you telling me a little bit about how you got into data and where that initial interest was sparked. So it's a funny story. And I think like most people in data, you know, I didn't do a data degree. Like that's like a relatively new thing. Um, I was always like a a quantitatively minded person like I'd always be asking like how much or things like that when I was a kid and I did uh math and science and computer science uh the whole way through school and at university I did more math and and like a bit a bit of like business mixed in uh but you know like most people uh, you don't really know what you want to do after after university. So I applied for internships, ended up in like big four accounting at ENY, um, doing uh, tax advisory. And like when I did my internship there, it was really the thing that actually made me choose to go on the grad scheme afterwards was I really enjoyed what is like an analytical part of it. So we'd build models of, essentially how money would flow through different legal entities and like where they would be taxed. And so then we'd kind of optimize the system effectively. And that's kind of like what tax advisory does. Ethics withstanding, I I really enjoyed like that process. So I knew I liked analysis at that point. And that was all Excel. I'd never really touched a database beyond Microsoft Access at school. But when I came to like the actual role, like, uh, it end up being like audit, which is really just checking that Excel or some other piece of software has done its like math correctly, or really more accurately checking that people have input things correctly, especially at the grad level. And it just wasn't really what I wanted to do. So I ended up looking for a role as an analyst. And I, you know, me just thinking I like analysis, not knowing like, you know, very much at all about like what's the rest of the skill set that like a, a a data analyst at that time would need to have. And I end up at a company called Acado as a strategy and trading analyst. So Acado is, is pretty famous in the UK now. At the time when I was there, it wasn't. It was like pre-IPO. And 
what Ocado does is it has it's it's an online grocer and it was the first online grocer in the UK. Um and what they were also famous for and they're still famous for is their is their robotics. So they have like some of the most advanced robotics in inside their warehouses for like picking products to put go in an order. And they still do, and they've like white labeled it out to some big US grocery firms like Kroger and uh and some other companies. Um and they have like one of the most interesting data sets still to date that I'd ever seen. That's where I kind of picked up my SQL, like uh, the the analyst, the other analyst there um taught me SQL, taught me Excel and VBA and things like that. And so that, that was like my first like data skill set. And I really realized, you know, I really like this work that I was doing there. And that that's kind of like how I ended up in data. That's super interesting. At least from my experience, SQL is so hard to learn if you don't have an actual database that you're working with that, yeah. you know, has real life concerns. When you mentioned Excel, I'm a huge fan of Excel. For me, coming to data science from statistics, I wouldn't have it any other way just because it's really hard to learn that theoretical knowledge and just everything that you're actually doing mechanically in a math sense. It just makes more sense when you start from the bare bones of a spreadsheet than if you learn the Python commands and then, you know, try to make it make sense. Excel's so visual and you can see how all the numbers flow around. I mean, to be honest, part, part of why I started with Excel was because it was kind of pre-BI tool. Like I remember actually at Ocado seeing Tableau for the first time like, and Tableau were pitching to us and it was a very early version of Tableau. That's crazy. Like, you know, Tableau is just so big right now. And the fact that they were, you were there on the other side when they were like grassroots pitching, that's crazy to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I also learned Tableau. I feel like it is a good mix between, you know, the visualization, giving you that gratification of getting a pretty chart right away, but they do have some tools that mimic Excel. So I feel like it is a good gateway if you don't have that stats knowledge to like at least kind of understand how things work. And I met you in person in New Orleans when you were here for the Coalesce conference last October and Metaplane was sponsoring that tie-dye booth and it was all very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> and since then, you've gone off on your own. Tell me about that. I think I've always been interested in high growth, like earlier stage companies. And, and like throughout my career, when I point to times where I've enjoyed myself more, it's where the communication has been more direct, where it's been a small organization where you could kind of have get your head around the whole organization rather than it being like big blocks of people who you don't know. Um, so the, I think that's kind of led me towards startups and maybe at the start of my career, I didn't really understand that. And the startups like scene in the UK was pretty underdeveloped. Um, but then, uh, yeah, as I, as I've come into like the last five years of, of what I've been doing, it's become clearer to me that I definitely want to work in startups, whether I wanted to actually be a founder was not something I realized until last year, actually, because I joined uh, a series, a 
it was a company called Ruby Labs, which was trying to raise its Series A. I joined as their VP of data, and I was really actually enjoying the time there. But the whole time that I was there, I was trying to help them with their data room and getting ready for Series A. Didn't manage to do the Series A. Um, and so like they had to let everyone, a, a lot of people go, including myself. But what that showed me was actually, it gave me a taste for like, this is what it, what kind of like what it's like to be a founder because the founders, they really exposed everything, right? And that was actually very helpful for me. Uh, at the same time, I had this opportunity where a friend of mine who I'd been like an advisor to for a while, uh, running a company called Avora, um, he was like at a position where Avora was this big full stack BI thing doing ELT and BI as well. And he was sp splitting it into like uh, a couple of different companies, like one that was an ELT company called Gravity, which was going off to do its own thing. And then Avora was here. So he was ending up running two companies, trying to spin something out of the old one as well. And I just could see, you know, he was a bit stretched, well, a lot stretched really. <laughs> and I thought I could, I thought I could, firstly, I could come in and help him. And I had this vision of like what I wanted to do in conjunction with uh, Avora and Semantic Layers. And that's kind of a bit of like foundation towards like what I came, wanted to do at Delphi. Um, but also in terms of a way for me to learn like what does like what does it mean like truly mean and what's the actual work of a founder so and I really got to I really got to experience that very much full-on for like four or five months but well pretty much what I was trying to do was raise money also run our company from a product point of view do some sales as well so I got like a pretty good experience there unfortunately you know we had to um go, we had to both go off to do separate things uh, because we, I wasn't successful raising money, but I learned, I, I kind of call it like a, a master's in, in startups. Um, and that's kind of how I ended up at Metaplane. I've been friends with Kevin for a while. Uh, and Kevin, like I was speaking to Kevin about like what I was going to do next. And he was like, oh, come, come join Metaplane. Come do those things that you'd like to do. And I had a great time at Metaplane. Uh, love that team still, still very much friends and in touch with them. But I think... I realized during that time I was there, I probably outgrown being an employee in some ways because like I, I was too used to like setting a product roadmap myself and deciding what's going on and going back to being an employee where you kind of like have a little bit of say, but not like the end like call. I, I think I I think I'd pro I think I'd probably outgrown it. Yeah, there's this, you know, I guess sense of autonomy that you have to put in check when you're working for yeah. somebody else. Um, and I'm not good. I'm not very good at doing that. Um, but yeah, it seems like you've had a lot of, you know, fast paced experiences and that these companies that you've worked with that were startups are, you know, quickly just entering the corporate world as these powerhouses. So that's really cool. Um, Let's dive into Delphi. Tell me about kind of um, what unfulfilled needs in, you know, our industry are being addressed by you starting this and, you know, what you hope to contribute and achieve both. Yeah. And and I, I guess like one of the things I experienced like throughout my time at like a company like Ocado where I would handcraft like every piece of analysis I did. We didn't have a BI tool. Like we even, we only talked about 
the idea of like having one dashboard in Excel that people used. And then throughout my time at like WorldPay, Elevate Credit and List, that last mile of data problem that people talk about, which is, you know, allowing non-technical people access to data safely and in a timely way, that was always something I was wrestling with. And we, I tried a number of things. So I've tried um, like Jira and Jira tickets and that kind of thing to to find a, like a way to manage the the workload. I've tried Looker as a way to actually allow people direct access to data, and none of them really solved it because there were always people who, you know, didn't have the assumed knowledge to use a BI tool because. What I've realized over time is the assumed knowledge of 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 that that people are expected to have to use a BI tool is similar to that of someone in Excel who knows how to use like pivot tables and like advanced formulas. And actually, that's that's like quite an advanced skill set as non for non technical stakeholders. And really, you're only talking about a small percentage of those non technical stakeholders of the company who have that skill set. Second, I mean, and then finally, you also have a number of people who just aren't inclined to want to do that. You know, they've got enough going on in the rest of their job. They may be capable, but they don't want to do it. And some just don't have time. And, you, you know, I, throughout my career, you know, C-level C people have just come up to me and said, hey, can you pull me this quickly before I'm going into this meeting? And so, so I'd end up doing the, the self-serve didn't happen, right? I just do it for them. So there's so many ways that this self-serve last mile problem has been broken the whole time that I've been working in industry. That kind of leads to uh, like this era, the era of AI and LLMs and, you know, why, why this time it's different. Because what Delphi is, is Delphi is, is using AI and LLMs on top of semantic layers to serve data to non-technical people in in a way that is safe and is easy. They don't need to know anything. And it's just as easy as talking to an analyst. That's that's our goal with it. And you know, we want to look after that whole workflow from them asking a question to them getting their answer. And there's a whole bunch of triage steps along the way, suggesting existing work, having that back and forth with them about like what the actual solution should be. And like all of that happens today in Delphi, and we want to have more uh nuance and more power in that process um but yeah th this is this is like how it's kind of like linked to what i wanted to solve for a long time the way i like i came to be involved with delphi was i met and it's funny you you know you mentioned coalesce uh, which is what which was organized by dbt labs uh i met michael my co-founder at delphi um through the dbt community so we've both been part of that community since 2019 uh, back when DBT Labs was, I think, about 20 people and the community was only 2,000. Uh, but, you know, over time, we'd kind of seen each other around and Michael had done more like technical stuff like open source contribution and DBT packages. And I'd done more writing and being on podcasts and speaking. Finally, last year, I realized that Michael was someone who was who had a background like me where he hadn't studied computer science. He'd done like a quantitative subject at university, but not computer science. Uh, started out as a data person 
and then had become a full stack software engineer. And I was really fascinated by that because I'm someone who's like gradually become more and more interested in software engineering. And I thought, wow, he must have so many of my unknown unknowns, like already already explored and understood. So I was thinking about writing a blog series with him on that. And hopefully we will do that one day, but we haven't done that yet. But what happened was early this year, Michael uh, reached out for some people to try his prototype of Delphi and me knowing him and having a stack to use it on, I, you know, I said, yeah, that sounds good. Let's have a try. We end up hacking together on it for a few sessions and I could just see this huge potential in it. That's really exciting to hear. I noticed when you said that, because what I find with people who don't want to code, but still have a lot at stake, you really want to know that the solutions that you're using are built and programmed by somebody who does have that knowledge. Um, You know, because when I see just all these low code, no code solutions, it's important for business minded people who might not have the time to learn but they definitely care about being accurate to know that it's someone like you at the helm and that, you know, that deep understanding isn't being glossed over just because the people in question don't happen to have time or like you said, interest in getting to that level of knowledge that needs to be there to have a safe tool. Safety and trust, like I think I've kind of like two sides of the same coin. That's something that's been like, something that's been core to what my any success I've had in data in my career is like I, I've known from a like a relatively junior analyst level at Ocado people only you know use you and trust your uh, trust your analysis or your work as much as they you know trust that you they think you'll get it right <laughs> and it's so important you'd rather give someone no answer or take a bit longer if possible than give them a wrong answer and that's that's baked into, and Michael believes exactly the same thing. Um, and that's baked into what we're doing with Delphi. And that that's why when so many of these like AI data tools are going straight to writing SQL, Michael and I have gone to the semantic layer instead. And the reason why we've done this is, you know, fundamentally we, from working in data, we've known that there is always a semantic layer. So a semantic layer for like anyone listening who, who doesn't know what they are, a semantic layer is like a mapping between real world objects like orders, customers, revenue, and uh, data structures. So there could be like tables, columns, files, and how how you know how to get that meaning out of those that logical data structures. And so that's that's the the beauty of the semantic layer is that suddenly you have this way and consistent way to always get the same results from from uh, data. There, you can still obviously have data quality problems and data consistency problems, but it's not meaning consistency. It, you know, that at least that part is, is solved. And semantic layers have been around for a while. So you think that like, the very first kind of iterations of them that we know of are like from 1992, you, you could probably say that it's probably been around since the 80s, but they've only really kind of taken off in like a big form since I think Looker came out and Looker is Looker's entirely built on a semantic layer. And that's where a lot of data people, especially in the modern data stack, especially in the DBC community are familiar with the semantic layer. 
And, you know, people really loved Looker because it gave them that ability to have consistency and to allow people to just pull metrics and dimensions and, you know, relatively safely explore them. And that's that's something I know is really valuable. And what's happened in the past is when you didn't have that explicit semantic layer as a tool, you know, the analyst would be the semantic layer. You know, the analyst would know how to join the tables and how to write the SQL and they'd sometimes get it wrong. And depending on which analyst you spoke to, you'd get like a slightly different semantic layer. What will happen today is if you use a large language model to write your SQL, the large language model becomes a semantic layer. So it, in and every time you query it, it generates a new semantic layer based upon what you've asked and it, what it can see in the data structure. So it, it's, and, and what we've seen is as soon as you put that on like a relatively complex or unclean like schema or database, it really struggles to give you safe answers and it will always give you an answer. That's one problem as well, is that it will guess, it will hallucinate. And it's just what Michael and I saw in them was, this is a very dazzling and, you know, very cool tool, but how could I put this in front of my enterprise stakeholders? I, we just couldn't see it. What happens is when you join those two technologies, the large language model and the the, the semantic layer as a tool, you suddenly constrain that large language model. You're giving it the semantic layer. You're giving it the model of the world to note, to draw upon. And so what can happen then is it doesn't need to guess. It doesn't need to hallucinate. When you ask it a question, it's got that semantic layer and the objects within to say, well, what, what is similar to the question in the semantic layer? And if there's nothing, you know, what we can do today in Delphi is say, we can't answer that question. We can't find anything in the semantic layer that's relevant. Ask your data team or choose something else that does exist in the semantic layer. And that's like fundamentally very important for any kind of automated data tool. It, because if, you, if you're not saying no ever, you're definitely wrong a lot of the time. <laughs> Cube is a semantic layer that makes it easy to connect data silos, create consistent metrics, and deliver them to your BI tools, customer-facing embedded analytics, LLMs, and AI agents. Cube Cloud delivers the enterprise-ready semantic layer that includes additional functionality, such as integrations with Power BI, Tableau, and Looker, along with robust developer tools, observability, security, and compliance, making it easy to quickly deploy, monitor, and use Cube across any size business. Cube is a supporter of Delphi, and I've had the pleasure of speaking with their lovely team quite a bit through DataFem. You can learn more about them at cube.dev. Now back to our show. So before the break, we were discussing the semantic layer and its capabilities. So why don't we continue doing that? Why don't we pick up right there? The semantic layer provides us with a lot of um, things that can, can continue to provide safety because, you know, and a lot of BI tools today, any object like a, a workbook or a dashboard are like arrays of semantic objects. And so you can do semantic search with the question and the pieces of work that already exist and expose them as solutions to a question. So reusing existing work, which is 
gonna help with consistency. The dashboard sprawl is a really big problem in a lot of organizations. People don't know which one to use. They just make more and then that makes the sprawl worse and so on, right? Whereas with Delphi, you know, for Delphi to scan through 10,000 dashboards is not a problem. It's a machine. And if it finds you consistently the right things, hopefully that dashboard sprawl will, redu will reduce and it will provide consistency and answers. And finally, when we do actually answer a question with a brand new semantic layer request, because it's a semantic layer request, it's got real objects. So it's like talking to an analyst and we can we can read back the request to the user. So if the, if the users ask for something like, what was my revenue by marketing channel last week? Delphi can say, Delphi, what Delphi can do is repeat that request that it's generated back in natural language. It's just like I used to do as an analyst is I would say back to the user, okay, I'm gonna pull you gross merchandise value, net of refunds with promo codes applied, by UTM channel, by order last week of order created date. So I would give my stakeholder like some context as to what I'd give them. And that would give them a chance to number one, understand and trust like what I'm giving them, but also a chance to challenge um, and say, oh no, I didn't want order created date. I wanted order ship date. I didn't want promo codes applied. And so then you kind of have that back and forth framing the question. And then finally, when they get a result, they're much more likely to get a good result that they can trust. And that's that's exactly how we've built Delphi. You know, it's trust. We we want to maximize the trust that someone can have in this tool. Yeah, I love everything you were saying. It's funny. I was coming up with these follow-up questions and then you'd be one step ahead of me and answer it, which is, you know, an interviewer's dream. I know that LLMs has become quite the buzzword, you know, leading up to Snowflake Summit and yeah. all the content that's being produced around that. How do you know who really gets it? and who is just saying it as a buzzword it's actually quite tricky because you know llms are like some of the most complicated things that you know in in not only in the field of data but in the field of computer science that we've ever created right and that's why partly why they're so powerful it's all you know the, the, sometimes the way i think about it is it's almost like we've grown like a, some brain like a, a, big, a big chunk of brain tissue in like a lab and managed to like hook up electrodes to it and it can you know based on inputs give us good outputs right that's the kind of the way I think about it but at the same time you know it's not a con it's not sentient it's not a consciousness it's a process you put input in you get output out you know and I think the way sometimes I judge like people writing and people talking about it is you know, if they don't understand that fundamentally, you know, it's, it's, that's what it is. It's a computer process. It's mathematics, it's matrix multiplication, or, you know, that's probably like um, a very, a very basic way of describing it. But if they're talking about it, like it's some kind of sentient object, and if they're talking about it, like it's, it's like Skynet, you know, yeah, I, I, you know, that's where I think, okay, you don't really know what you're talking about because that's not how this thing works. That that's and I actually Mark Andreessen of Andreessen Horowitz recently wrote a post which, uh, which is called uh, "Why AI Will Save the World." And when I read the title, I was like, "What? This sounds, you know, very left field, uh, very out there." And actually, when I read it, I was like, oh, I actually agree with pretty much everything you've said. <laughs> and I think that's a really good post 
um, you know, by someone who has a deep, he's not like an AI researcher, but has a good understanding of the field, but also then has obviously a very large uh, VC that has invested in many companies, both in the infrastructure and in the application of the these tools. I think that's a really good like post for anyone to to look at in in both both from like a, a high level how these things work and also implications of them. Thanks for contributing that. I often like to put resources such as that in the show notes so that people can easily, you know, follow along, access what you're talking about. And that's really helpful. It's funny. I feel like there is some kind of fantasy involved when you are talking to these kind of models, because of course, you know that they're not, you know, <laughs> interacting on an emotional level, but somehow playing into that, I guess, for me, feels like feels exciting to a certain degree. So this is really funny. Um, my friend group, some of us are more into data and math than others. And, you know, two of them, they have a burger night every Thursday and they've been using chat GPT to, come up with a recipe that you know is based on bob's burgers the show and add some kind of unique twist and the prompt um i saw the prompt yesterday and you know it's just it's interesting because you give these instructions but you give them politely because you are interacting with something you know so i i made a joke i'm like did you say thank you um and i i wonder why you know i feel the need to interact so i guess authentically with this service that isn't actually another human interface and i don't know if it's kind of feeling altruistic like you know we are training this model why well, don't train it to be good to be nice you know <laughs> um so it's like yes i feel like i i love that you know, this technology, you can always trace it back to simple matrices, to algebraic equations, um, you know, to just, you know, this architecture. But it's nice to kind of imagine it being an analyst, an analyst friend, somebody, a consultant, you know, a wise guru, yeah. you know, putting, I guess, putting those human characteristics on it to a certain extent. The trouble is like when you, when you do use it um, directly, um, I think it's, it, it can feel like that because of, because it's like, a it's a mirror of us, right? So it sounds like everyone. <laughs> And um, therefore, like when you talk to it, it sounds like someone you know, because it might well have learned from someone you know, or someone you've heard of. Um, and especially the more people write out there, the more it's learned from those people. And that's, and they're usually the people that you're most familiar with reading about, like reading their, their, their speech and their content. So I think that's, I, that's why it sounds like us it, it, it's and it sounds like us and that's why it's so engaging um I think because because of that but it's you know 
it, if you think about what that model's trying to do, it's it's trying to predict the next word and like what's the right word to say next. That and in in order to sound like everything else it has seen before, and that that's like guaranteed to make it sound very human. But it 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 it's also um, very much not uh, sentient, and it's very much not making decisions. It's just trying to predict the next word it should say. We're talking about trust and how, you know, these models can be trusted because of, you know, the way that they're being built and, you know, the ability to say, no, I don't know the answer, all of these things. But if you if you met a human who's constantly calculating what the best thing to say next is, that's the epitome of mistrust. That's the epitome of yeah. a dangerous person. So it's and weird. You do meet those people, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the, you know, and to some extent, I mean, we all do that um, sometimes subconsciously. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think what I find interesting is that these technologies have been um, infiltrating is not the right word, but I guess um, seeping their way into our world for a very long time. And I'm wondering what you think about you know, how classifying Siri, Alexa, Cortana, all of these um, as LLMs. And then, of course, the introduction of ChatGPT, um, like what does classifying them as large language models do for us? Because we have learned in the past several years to recognize them just as their names. Um, but grouping them together, I suppose, has some sort of function. I think like with some of the tools like Siri, um, the way they've been built is is like much more deterministic than the way uh, like GPT-4 works, right? Uh, that may change, <laughs> to be honest, and may have actually changed since Apple's last keynote. And even though I have an iPhone, I don't really use Siri. And then you've got like the, the things that like DeepMind are working on, which are much closer to like what I would really call AI rather than a large language model, because those those tools like AlphaGo or AlphaFold, they're genuinely trying to find a strategy, right? They've been that's what they've been built to do is to find their own strategy and and optimize to that. Yeah, very interesting. And I have to ask, I didn't put this in the question doc, but I have noticed on LinkedIn that you do sometimes post about Web three, and I find that interesting because um, I'm. A little bit. I was more involved. Um, I'm kind of taking a hiatus, but I'm pretty involved in Web3 as well as, you know, AI and analytics. And that's how I first came across GPT was kind of, um, you know, through my Web3 network. And then now everybody in my data science network is also talking about it. And I'm wondering, you know, if you have any comments on how those two, I guess, levels or worlds are different from each other and how they're applying it and, you know, what are the future implications of that? You know, could this be the uniting force, et cetera? My, my knowledge of Web3, and I, I hope I haven't posted too much about it because my knowledge of it is limited, but um, my, my thinking about them is they're very different. And the way I've thought about Web3 kind of roots back to me thinking about like blockchain in 2015 and that. And then now more recently, I've seen more like some interesting things like Filecoin, which I thought actually this genuinely is a useful 
Web3 application and stable coins and things like that, which could genuinely be very helpful. But I I always think that Web3 was like a technology that was searching for use cases that would take it, make it big. Whereas with um, large language models, the use case was always there. People, people have wanted to talk to computers and get what they want. That was almost like, that was almost the point of the computer. And if you think about where, where computers started, like with like a command line where you were asking it for something, but you had to be very, very specific about how you asked it for something, that's always been what we wanted to do. It's just, we couldn't do it very well. And now suddenly it's beginning to feel like talking to computer on, you know, in a Gene Roddenberry like uh, kind of way. And that's all, it it's always feels like that was the use case. Now we have the technology and that's, that's the, that's like the way I see uh, the LLMs and AI versus web three. Yeah. It'll be interesting to, see what everybody's discussing at snowflake summit around llms i've seen a lot of talks um and also at odsc there were some talks about it and it's crazy how fast the i guess content focuses move because you know llms were definitely around um, last year at conferences but that it wasn't as prominent you know a focus where all the talks were about it you know um, I find that really interesting, kind of how you can follow the trends through conferences. And now that we have those live events back, um, I think that can be really, really influential, not just for connections like you and Michael have experienced, but for really gauging, I guess, the environment of, you know, what people want to use to advance with data. Um, and that landscape is so rapidly changing. It's hard to keep up. Yeah, and, and I think the change is incredible, like, especially over the last six, six seven months. Like, I've, I don't think I've ever seen change that fast, not since people connected to the internet, really. And, you know, if I, I went to Snowflake Summit last year, when I was after that, that uh, conference, I would never have guessed that the main headline for this year would have been something to do with LLMs and AI. Never, ever wouldn't, wouldn't have thought that would happen. And now, you know, see like uh there's going to be a keynote with frank and um the ceo of nvidia the i think the main keynote is definitely going to be something ai related and you know almost certainly snowflake will be announcing that you can run queries using llms um and uh, and possibly even use them in queries as well which is very very interesting as well and you you, you could just couldn't have even seen it eight months ago right honestly yeah, I definitely observed the same thing. Um, and, you know, it's interesting to think about like what makes, you know, a whole topic or a whole concept or a technology, the focus of these keynotes, you know, like um, you said that you didn't predict that LLMs would be the topic at the keynote, you know, this year at Snowflake Summit. Um, why do you think, why do you think it became that? Or, you know, what, what, um, what makes, I guess, conferences choose these types, um, of just content to focus on? I find that so interesting. I think it's because it's such a pervasive enabling technology. I think like the last time we saw, we, we've seen this twice 
and I think in our lifetimes and the first one was the internet and suddenly you know every every company was becoming like some kind of internet company and that's great and you and when that happened I, we probably saw the same thing like some conference where you'd never have thought they'd be talking about internet and networking suddenly it was like it probably was a market a, a giant marketing conference right and suddenly that was the keynote right it was the internet and then you can see the same thing happening when cloud uh took off you know suddenly every company wanted to have like the infrastructure on cloud like every tech company and so cloud would have become that you know back you know in the probably mid mid to late 2000s uh like 2005 onwards this is the next thing and it's it's you know easily as big right because every saas tool every every provider is looking for some way to uh infuse this because their their customers are asking for it um they need it to compete because suddenly it's much easier for someone to come and disrupt you because this foundational technology is enabling them which wasn't possible before just just like how the internet enabled a load of disruption and the clouds enabled a load of disruption. You say enabling, it's like, it's pretty scary when you think about, you know, how technology enables our positive growth, but it can also enable bad actors. That's a whole nother topic. So I kind of want to take this big picture and ask you, because you've had so much experience and diverse experience working with data and being in tech, um, What's some advice for not even just entry level, but everybody in the field? What's some advice you have to um, keep up with this vastly <laughs> changing environment? Um, what are some things you can do every day to make sure that you stay honest and stay um, up to date? I think like the first thing is don't be afraid of it. Like <laughs> it's not, it's nothing, it's not to be afraid of. It's, it, and if if possible, try to like look forward to it and be optimistic about it. And I think if you start thinking about it like that and, and start thinking, how can I use, and this is something I think about as a founder all the time, because I have to do like pretty much every role in my company apart from engineering. It's, you know, how can I use this to make myself better at whatever this task, whatever the task I'm doing next that like, and if you're in data, like that might be, you know, writing like some Python, like a Python pipeline or an airflow job or, uh, or some SQL or a DPT model. And how, how could I do like documentation better? How could I do unit testing better? How could I do uh, anything that I might do uh, better? And and usually because like our interface to doing anything is language of some kind, the large language models often you know I, it's it's quite rare that they don't have a way that 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 to help in some way. And so if you start thinking about how can I use this to make my make everything I do better, you don't need to be afraid because you're basically making yourself that much more productive and that much more employable and that much more valuable. Like that, I think that's the, if, 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 if you want to know what to do as a data person, think, think that way. Um, and I think you'll be fine. Well, perfect. Where can my audience and I go to learn more about Delphi? 
currently we're on Slack, but we're looking to expand out into like standalone application. People are trying to reach out to us to use us to embed us in their own things. We want to serve as many people as we can. And so in the future, whereas today we're kind of dependent on people having a semantic layer in place, that won't be uh, such a constraint in, in the near future. We, we plan to help them get there, whether that's through partnerships, whether that's through consultancies we work with, or that whether that's through automation of generating those semantic layers uh, as part of our offering. Well, I am so glad that you came on the show and I'm so glad to know all of this. So to my DataFem listeners, as always, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm definitely trying to post more of my content on there. And more importantly, I'm trying to post it more consistently. And you can also email me at any time. You can email me at dikayo at dikayodata.com. And I look forward to our next meeting.